The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC, doing business as Forget-Me-Not Ancestry. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, we're going to be talking about census substitutes and state census records with William Dollarhide, and that's all 50 states. Uh, So we're going to be talking about uh, actual state census records uh, for all 50 states, We'll be talking about the substitute and the series of books uh, that Bill has written uh, in all different forms about censuses and census substitutes. So it's going to be a wonderful, broad show looking at all 50 states today. Um, And Bill was on the show, I think, a couple of years ago uh, talking about the New York State censuses in particular, the one volume specifically on New York. Um, And then uh, he contacted me and said that there's a series of three volumes uh, that are are coming out that takes each of the states and looks at them in regions. Um, So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, Bill, welcome back to the show. Well, hi, Jane. Nice to be here. (laughs) It's great to have you back. So as as you know, I start out the show asking you uh, where you were born, raised, your education, and your careers. So uh, please refresh our memories. All right. Uh, I'm Seattle, born and raised um, and educated. I uh, went to the University of Washington. Um, and uh, in 1994, I left Washington and went to Utah. There seems to be something about people that are heavy into genealogy end up migrating to Utah for some reason. Well, it took me 20 years to get home, so I'm back in Washington, but I I spent a lot of time in the family history library for the last 20 years. Then uh, my career really in genealogy is uh, 45 years ago, (laughs) Uh, 1972, in fact, is when I, I got interested in genealogy. And I got interested in genealogy because family dinners, uh, Thanksgiving and those sort of things, a few times a year, there would be a bunch of relatives sitting around the table talking about where the name Dollarhide came from. And I grew up with that uh, almost every year. Somebody would, would raise that subject. And I was always amazed that I had two aunts, my dad and, a, and an uncle, that all had a different story. Uh, one said it was English, one said it was Scottish, one said it was Welsh. Nobody said it was German, but uh, and nobody said it was Irish, but but they all uh, had a different place where, where this name came from. And I just told myself, you know, someday I'm going to find out. Well, I had to turn 30, but uh, I did. And uh, I, most of the people that were wrong are now dead, and I can't correct them. <laughs> but, but it was Ireland. It wasn't England. It wasn't Germany. So uh, that's what got me started. It was just a 
try to find out why these people had different stories. And I got hooked. And uh, I went professional in genealogy in uh, 1985. I started selling things for genealogists. And then I started writing books uh, about that time. So uh, eight years as an amateur and then 32 years as a professional. So that's my career in genealogy. Okay. All right. And we're going to be talking about your books today. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, a couple of years ago, you were talking about uh, New York State censuses, at the, the particular book for that. So now we've got all 50 states today. What was the inspiration to write you know, for all of the 50 states? Well, I wanted to, well, after we did New York, and the way New York happened is, that, you know, in the early 2002, something like that, when we were doing those articles on, and I was doing it by region, so I was got to, got to the Mid-Atlantic and included New York and Pennsylvania and New Jersey and so on in that group. Uh, New York was the most fun uh, because there's more things going on in New York than anywhere else than state censuses. And, then, and there's a bigger population there, so it, it has more impact on people doing genealogy because of that. And every five years, uh, you have a census in New York from 1825, then 1830 federal, and then 1835 New York, and so on, all the way to 1925. Anyway, that fascinated me. So I I took on New York to take it to the county level because what I was doing for each of the states at that time was strictly the statewide databases, censuses, and a, and if there was a statewide tax list or a statewide voter list or a statewide list of births or lists of marriages or lists of divorces, uh, you know, that were substitutes. I would I would try to find a do a bibliography of those, but with New York, I decided you know the problem with New York is that the originals are at the counties. There's 62 counties, and uh, that's unique because you know I, a lot of people I don't remember the I think it was 1903 there was a fire in the in the state library building in uh, Albany that destroyed the state copies of the state copies uh, of the state census that were gathered. But fortunately, there was a county copy that was kept. So that's what makes New York unique, is that there's 62 counties that have the original censuses. And this is no other state has that. Uh, so I wanted to, that's why I got into New York. I got into it deeply. I'm just looking at every single county and identifying not only the state censuses, but some substitutes. So that's what got me into New York. Well, I wanted to take that concept and go to all states and do it. Man, I'll tell you what, I don't have enough years left in my life to do that. So what we did was, is, all right, let's go back to the concept of statewide databases. Don't take it to the county level. So New York is the only state where we have done it that kind of detail. That's a 250-page book. All the other states are like 80 to 100 pages because we are limiting it to the statewide databases that are available for not only the censuses, the state censuses, or the census substitutes. And that's how we kind of the inspiration for doing each of the individual states. And you talked about New York being unique in terms of how it kept its state censuses. How do other states keep their their censuses? Is is it all at the state level? 
Well, you know, there's actually 38 states that have ever taken a state census. Um, that means there's 12 that have not. And actually, it's 13 if you add D.C. But uh, uh, what is, I, I think it's kind of interesting about this is the name census is, is uh, it's not used in Pennsylvania or in Ohio, but they took state censuses in both of those states regularly. They just didn't call them a census. In Ohio, they were called a quadrennial enumeration. And in Pennsylvania, they were called a septennial enumeration. That's because in Pennsylvania, they were done every seven years. And in Ohio, they were done every four years. A little different. But uh, they didn't get called censuses because the tax assessor in each county was the one responsible for taking the census. Even though it was not for the purpose of taking uh, a taxes, it was for the purpose of apportioning the state legislature based on population. And that's the reason why all censuses were taken. In fact, the federal census is uh, mandated by the United States Constitution that an enumeration shall be taken every 10 years. And the purpose of that is to apportion the seats in the House of Representatives. And uh, this same concept is why states got involved in doing it. Why the states didn't decide up front to start using the uh, federal censuses to apportion their state legislature, I'm not sure. It's just that New York decided we want to count the people. We don't trust the national census, apparently. And uh, so they started taking it uh, every 10 years, but they started taking it on the fives rather than uh, uh, on the same year as the federals. And so... Um, New York is a good example of uh, they used the state census to apportion the state assembly uh, until 1925, and then they passed a law that says we don't need to do that anymore. We'll go get the federal census to find out what the apportionment will be, and that's what happened in every state. And do you know which state was first to uh, take a state you know, census? No, I, I just did a check on that. <laughs> Uh, it depends on whether or not we're talking about a state or a territory or even the colonial period. Because if, you, if, you, if we go back to the colonial area, New Mexico had one done in 1600. Well, the Spanish census. Uh, the Louisiana Purchase area, uh, Arkansas, Missouri, those places had censuses about 1680. And in Florida, it goes back to about 1680 as well. Uh, but if we go to the United States and the territory, the first territorial census was in Mississippi in 1801. And uh, in the, the first 10 uh, were done uh, Mississippi, 1801, and Mississippi Territory, uh, Indiana Territory, 1807, Illinois Territory, 1810. Arkansas Territory, 1814. You get to number eight is New York in 1825. And as it turns out, New York is the first state, actual state, that's taken a state census. The others are territories. So uh, uh, they really didn't get started until after 1800. Technically, Maryland did one the same year they became a state. So really, Maryland is for 1788. Okay, so so the states were taking censuses uh, to 
uh, help with representation in their state governments. What That's about right. the Spanish in, in, in Mexico and Florida in the 1600s and then the, the territories? Why were well, those the, censuses taken? The Spanish are famous for taking censuses that are really taxless. They wanted to know how much money they had coming. So they had to count the people. Uh, so, you know, we get, we get the list of residents of an area is really the head of households of an area and who are subject to tax. That's what their census is. In the colonial period, that's all. The same reason the French took it and the same reason the British took the censuses. There are British censuses in West Florida and East Florida uh, that are very useful because they're, real, they're very thorough. And uh, they still exist, and so uh, you can use those to get people that kind of precede the time when it became part of the United States. What's what's fun is finding the colonial censuses are they're not here; they're in Madrid, or they're in London, or they're in uh, Paris. You know, the, the the records have been microfilmed, and guess where the microfilm is? It's Salt Lake City. Very interesting. So then, then what about the the territories like Illinois and I know um, Minnesota? Uh, when my ancestors were there, it was a territory. Why were those yes. censuses taken? Uh, the the, the Territory is uh, has a legislature that is also apportioned by population, so it's the same basic reason. But there's another compelling reason for a territory to take a census, and that is it has to have a minimum population to become a state. So the territories are taking extra censuses. They're taking censuses primarily for the purpose of apportioning the territorial legislature. Uh, the one that I thought was really interesting was Nevada, which, which became a territory in 1861, and they took a census for the first four years in a row because every year they would add a new county. That meant they had to go do a new census. And not all state uh, uh, territories did that, but in, in Nevada it was interesting that the the rules for apportioning their uh, territorial legislature meant that if you get a new county, you got to go get a new census. But the main reason for territories taking extra censuses was to, what's our population? Are we qualified to petition for to become a state? And the number of people required to become a state changed, and sometimes was ignored. Um, during the Civil War period, Abraham Lincoln wanted to, to get new states in place uh, in Nebraska, in Colorado, and in Nevada, and he offered uh, statehood to those states, even though they didn't have anywhere near the minimum population. He said, don't worry about it. If, you, if you'll get a petition, I'll make sure Congress passes it and you'll become a state. What Abraham Lincoln was doing was trying to get votes for his second election in Congress. And so, uh, Nevada became a state because Abraham Lincoln wanted to get their votes. Oh, very interesting. Do you know what the minimum population was in order to become a state? It started out at 60,000. That's when Ohio was the first state uh, that was a territory, uh, Northwest Territory, and it became a state in 1803. 
uh, after it reached a population of 60,000. And that remained the rule for about 40, 50 years until uh, the Civil War era. And, and Lincoln kind of just modified the rules on his own. But uh, Very interesting. One of the things that happened sometimes when a state would be created, there would be areas of the original territory that wasn't included. I don't know if you realize that in Minnesota, when it, when it was first created, uh, there was a big chunk of Minnesota territory that wasn't included in the state of Minnesota. And so uh, in 1858, here comes Minnesota, and then two years later, the 1860 census has got an area here that is that belongs to no one. And so the Census Bureau just gave it a name. They called it Unorganized Dakota. And it's in the <laughs> census. And it's in the census under that name. But it's not anybody's name except the census office. Okay. So then what types of information can we find in these censuses? Uh, I don't know if we want to talk about like colonial and territorial and state separately, um, maybe you know things that that we're not going to find in the federal censuses. But typically, uh, up until 1850, uh, all censuses, whether federal or state or colonial, are heads of households only. In other words, the name of the person who is the head of the household, and then they just count the number of males and females that are living in that house, and that's pretty much the way censuses were done. And it wasn't until 1850 that somebody got the idea of listing the names of the people living in that house. And so that's the first census in which names are listed. And states follow the same format. So, so uh, the states are learning how to do a census from the federal government. And generally the uh, information is almost always just limited to the names of, uh, of the heads of households and then a list of males and females in age categories. Uh, you know, a number of males under five, number of males under nine, and so on. Uh, and that's the way all censuses are conducted, and there's very little other information involved. There, there is, uh, before the Civil War, the, the heads of household censuses almost always have questions about uh, free and slave uh, members of a household. So you, you'll pick up uh, how many blacks uh, are in a particular household in Virginia. And what you'll find out is that the population of blacks in Virginia in 1790 was greater than it was for whites. So the, that's, that's kind of a historical uh, vignette of the censuses because it, it it isn't giving you a lot of information about uh, what they do for a living and that sort of thing or how much education they've had. That comes later. But the first ones are heads of household and are really telling us the nature of the population, black and white. Then after we have the first federal census where we have, I think it's three categories, and the females are all grouped into one category, right. why did they – then start wanting to know the ages. And so we have age categories. Yeah, actually, they didn't even need to do that. You know, the U.S. Constitution said the enumeration should be taken. 
and, and very much like the rest of our U.S. Constitution, the wisdom of that document is that it, it states what has to be done and leaves the details to others. I, I really like that. If you, if you consider that document is a very simple, simple document because all of the details are left to the states and to the Supreme Court of the United States. So enumeration, uh, in order to be legal and follow what the U.S. Constitution asked for for a census, and the word census was never used. It was, it was an enumeration shall be taken. All I had to do was count the people. But the federal government from day one decided they wanted the name of the head of household in that first census. They didn't have to. All I had to do was list the name, the number of people. And so it was kind of an afterthought. So, okay, well, let's list the number of females. (laughs) So, I mean, the females, of course, are not voters, and they're not property owners yet. You know, we still have... uh, we still have the old English system of the widow's thirds where a married woman cannot own land in her own name. Uh, so the only guy who's, who's able to pay taxes or own, own property and is subject to the census is the head of household male. <laughs> so that's who they counted, and that's why women are not, not considered people yet. And and then why did they decide to take stock of the different ages? You know, what what was the purpose in that? Well, there there is uh, from day one there is a group of American scientists, if you will, who are interesting and are interested in gathering vital statistics about particularly about the health of the people of this country and. Uh, They saw the census as a way of finding out how many people died, uh, how many people were born. So they want to see the age categories, and and they'll get an idea of the birth rate. Later, they start asking, they start doing death uh, mortality schedules, uh, and they're actually asking the question, how did this person die? So, so it, was, it was determined that census could be used as a way of gathering vital statistics and particularly for answering health questions that, um, that the medical profession is interested in the spread of diseases and can you localize that disease to a certain place. And so that's, they saw that. Uh, as census, as a way of getting that information. And it was the influence of the scientific community on Congress that caused those sort of questions to be asked in the census. It was ultimately a failure. I mean, uh, the last mortality census was done in 1860, and they never did it again because we were not getting accurate information. And so what you see happening is it took 50 more years before Congress to say, you know, the gathering of vital statistics should be done at the state, not at the U.S. federal census level. And it took 50 years before that actually went into law where Congress told each state, you need to make a statewide registration list of people born and people die in your state. It took, once that 
uh, law came out of Washington, D.C. about 1895. It took 25 years before all states, all 48 states, got statewide vital statistic registration. Before that, it was all done at the county level. And it was because of the failure of, of gathering it at the nation level for the censuses that caused Congress to say, give it back to the states. We can't do it. Very interesting. And you're, I'm, I didn't know the history of, of censuses and how this all evolved into our uh, vital record uh, keeping systems yeah. on the state level. So very interesting. Uh, we're going to take a bit break right now. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. You can take the Forget-Me-Not Hour on the road with you. Uh, You can find it on iTunes under Jane E. Wilcox and listen to it on the go. Uh, You'll also find on the blog talk page uh, the Forget-Me-Not Hour archives. Uh, There are wonderful shows from, I I think, it's six years now. Um, Take advantage of those. Uh, We also... uh, have uh, buttons on your blog talk page uh, that are for the social media. Please share the Forget Me Not Hour with your friends and family on social media. And also there's a follow button on the blog talk page. Uh, If you uh, click that, you'll receive an email letting you know that the show is going on the air. Um, So today today we are talking about state censuses and and censuses in general. In particular, we're going to be talking about the books uh, uh, with uh, Bill Dollarhide, books that he's written. Um, So, uh, I, I guess uh, backing up a, a minute. So we've got the states 
taking censuses. And, and you mentioned, I think there were 12 that never did take a census. Um, what are some of those states that, that never did take a census? Well, uh, I can read them off for you. Uh, Alaska, never. Delaware, never. District of Columbia, never. Idaho, never. Kentucky, never. Montana, never. New Hampshire, never. Ohio, actually they have, but they just didn't call them censuses. Pennsylvania, same thing. Uh, Texas, and you know, Texas is a big state. <laughs> 254 counties in Texas. The next the next largest is Georgia with 180. Uh, and not a single state census has ever been well, actually, there was one, but only one county uh, for 1858 has ever been found. And so uh, that's why we are doing census substitutes. Texas counties were taking taxes every year from 1835 to 1920, every year. They are a beautiful list of names of residents of every county of Texas. Texas never took a single state census that survived except for one county. Uh, but yet 254 counties have county-wide tax lists that you can use as a substitute. Then there's Vermont and there's Virginia and West Virginia have never done uh, state censuses. But that kind of leads into the the idea of census substitutes. Because, it does. It uh, does. So, so Leland uh, Meitzler, who's the publisher of the census books that we're talking about, uh, said that the substitutes in these books far outnumber the state censuses. So let's yes. let's talk about that. Well, uh, if you figure, census is generally taken every ten years. Federal censuses and most state censuses is about the same time. In fact, uh, it's interesting how many of them were taken on the fives. So, like in New York, you got 1825, 1835, and 45, and so on, all the way to 1925. Although in New York, they did get screwed up with 1892 getting thrown in there. But that's another story. I think we talked about this last time, James. New York I had some political problems with their censuses and and uh, they got they got into big debates in their state assembly over whether or not we should have censuses and so what they they missed their cycle for eighteen eighty five and and didn't do it until eighteen ninety two but most of the states were doing it the same way, so as a result, you know you got about a ten year gap uh uh, between state censuses and between federal censuses. And, and naturally, your ancestors lived in that state for the four years between censuses. So they're not in any census. Uh, what if there was a tax list taken during that four-year period? See, what the need for census substitutes is, is when there, when there was no census available, uh, if you look at the federal censuses from 1790 to 1920, the way the censuses were taken uh, le led themselves to being uh, subject to being lost and destroyed. That's because they were not ever sent to Washington, D.C. until many years later. Uh, so the first, you know, first uh, 
1790, 1800, 1810, and 1820 were all taken at the individual state level, and they stayed in the state, the originals stayed in the state. And you know, the, the, the federal censuses started out being taken by the U.S. district court system. The federal marshal for that state was in charge of taking the census. So assistant marshals were hired just for the purpose of going door to door and taking the census. There was no census office or a census bureau. Uh, census bureau became a permanent agency in 1903, but before that, it was all done by the federal marshals. And the law read, for every census, there's a law that says when, when it should be taken and uh, what the questions will be and so on. And it also states that when the originals are done, they shall be turned over to the clerk of the district court for that state. And uh, there may be more than one district court. There were several, uh, in, actually two in Virginia in 1790, and there were two in Massachusetts in 1790. They were taken by district court, not by state. So there were 16 uh, district courts in 1790 and 14 states. <laughs> anyway, they, uh, from one state to the next, you didn't know whether those district court clerks cared about those census records after the census was taken and then 10 years later a brand new one comes in what do you do with the old one throw it away because that's what happened to a lot of it and that's that means that there are gaps in the federal censuses that need substitutes to take their place and uh, the biggest loss of the census at the federal level is from 1790 to 1820 when it was when they were being kept at the court level and then after 1820 the rules changed and they passed a law says we want these originals come to Washington DC so they made them make a copy before 1820 they weren't making copies of them so uh, after 1820 they started making copies of the census and sending one to Washington DC and they're 100 percent complete from 1820 forward because of that law uh, except for 1890 which got stuck in a fire in a building in Washington, D.C. In, in 1921, destroyed the entire 1890 census, all on one floor of the Commerce Building. So, uh, but except for that one huge loss in 1890, all the federal census are complete when they, when they pass a law to return one copy to the Washington, D.C. The other thing that's interesting is that there are Sometimes copies of these federal censuses that didn't go to Washington, D.C., they stayed in the county. You know what state has the most uh, county copies of federal censuses? is New York. And why, I'm not really sure, but I think it has something to do with the law for the state censuses of New York. In New York, the clerk of the county was, by law, told to keep the state census originals and preserved them. They were not allowed to destroy them. So as a result, there's, there's the, the state censuses for New York are in all 62 counties are complete. Now, there are a few losses, but mostly that's what we look at on microfilm. And, and, and more recently, Ancestry.com has taken all of the New York state censuses and digitized them and indexed them from uh, 1835 forward. The census losses is the main reason why we need substitutes. 
if uh, if I uh, if I don't have a census for this year uh, in New York, uh, in Broome County, in 1825, what do I do? I go to Broome County tax lists if they're available. How about voter lists if they're available? Or how about if somebody got in and and taken the local newspaper and made an index of all the obituaries ever written for 50 years of that newspaper. Those are books that have been published. That's a census substitute because there's a list of people who live in that county during the time when the census is missing. So we use the census substitutes when the census isn't available. And, uh, but the, if you figure, well, I've got between this 10-year period, between 1825 and 1835, we got a federal census for those two years only. In between, there's nine years I can go get census substitutes, and there's going to be some. That's why it works out that there's about ten times as many census substitutes as there are censuses. I'm sorry, I, I was uh, uh, muting because I've been coughing in the background. Um, so how how did you decide what uh, you know what to include in terms of the substitutes? Are, you know, did you do every tax record that was created uh, in a county, or you know a, you know a, everything that you could find, or what you know, what criteria did you use? Well, I did I did have to narrow it down uh, somewhat. I mean, uh, there's a, a there's a very large variety, but. But what I at the state level, if it if it covered a good sized number of counties in that state, that that was the first rule, uh, and the but kind of in order uh, after the census, I'm looking at a tax list. A tax list is just like a head of household census. It's the name of the taxpayer, which is usually the head of household. Uh, the next voter list. This is every white male over 21 living in that county, let's say. And next I go to directories, but directories don't really become important until around 1885, 1890, somewhere in there. And they're very important through the early 1900s up to about 1940, 1950. Uh, Lesser so in the larger cities after about 1950 because the cities are too big for that publish a book of Manhattan uh, every year the way they did in 1932, which is the last city directory of Manhattan, uh, because it's just <laughs> over a million people on that island alone, and uh, you, it, it's just too expensive to put a book out like that. So directories are valuable, but they kind of come a little later on. Court records, which which we we have to include the land and property and deed records, and then the the really valuable probate records, which which probate records are going to have estate papers and wills and uh, and uh, inventories of the state of the person who died and that sort of thing, and they are very thorough. Uh, you know, uh, people who have a will. Uh, that's going to be probated, and the heirs are going to profit from the uh, estate of the deceased. Are not nothing is going to happen legally unless that will has been recorded at the courthouse. 
So there's a very good chance that your, your ancestor died with property and a will. And that if that's the case, there's going to be a probate record. And that's, that's a census substitute because it's a list of people in that county. Then newspapers are valuable because um, they often have indexes to obituaries and indexes to the articles themselves. There's now a, an outfit called Genealogy Bank, which does newspapers for virtually every city over 50,000 population in the United States uh, with the newspapers. And there's literally 10 to 15,000 different newspapers that are thoroughly digitized and indexed. You can do a scan uh, for that newspaper for about a 50-year period. That's a census substitute. Then histories that have been written for uh, counties and sometimes for cities are really valuable. I mean, uh, during the uh, period about 1870 through about 1930, uh, they were a very popular thing to sell to the local farmer. You walk, walk from farm to farm, knock on the door and say, uh, sir, did you know that you were about to be featured in the new county history that we're going to be putting out? And he said, no. Well, all you have to do is buy this book for 40 bucks, and we'll make sure that you're in there. And then the subscription book. So uh, anybody who's in there, there's a very detailed uh, biography of that person. And that was a very popular thing that was sold in this country around the turn of the century. And they are now census substitutes because they give great detail about the people who lived there in that time. Final records are another substitute because a list of births, lists of marriages, lists of deaths, now lists of divorces are big. Uh, and you have to put in there a list of burials and cemetery records. Uh, I throw in there another group that people don't realize is a source for finding the name of people who died. And that is there's usually a stonemason near a cemetery who has been doing monuments for that cemetery for a hundred years or more. Been in the same family for years and years. And you go by that monument house and they have a three by file five card file of everybody they've ever done a monument for and what the details was on the stone that was carved. It's like a another list of the burials of the cemetery that you didn't know exist. And it's over there in a private stonemason's building. Not not a well-known source, but it's there, and go get it. So we do those. Now, final the final uh, substitute that I use is military lists because they're so prevalent. There's a militia list for every state, and that's because this country started out with a militia rather than a United States Army. The Civil War was fought by state militia units. About 95% of the soldiers that fought in the Civil War, both sides, Confederate and Union, were from state units. They were not regular army. That means it's the state adjutant general who makes a list of who his soldiers are. And those lists are census substitutes because every uh, every male of, of age, of, of legal age, is susceptible to being in the militia either in the draft or in the army itself. So those are the substitutes and criteria that I use for this, if it's a statewide list, it goes. 
if it's just a partial statewide, if it's just a few counties, well, we have to decide depending on uh, how many other things we have, you know. But uh, a kind of an order is I start with tax list and voter list and then directories and court records and newspaper histories and then vital records and then military lists. That's the things that I follow for census substitutes. Okay. I, as I was going through the, the three volumes, uh, which I should mention, we have the eastern states, central states, and western states, uh, plus national is tucked in with western. I, I was looking at states that I don't normally do research in, and I was just amazed at, at all of the substitutes, the different types of substitutes that were included. Um, was digitization a factor in selecting the substitute? I'm sorry, say the first part again. Was digitization a factor in oh, uh, selecting the Yeah, well, that's the first thing that goes into these books. Uh, now, when we first did that, that's uh, a substitute book in 2008. That was a two-volume set. We updated that in 2016. Uh, in 2016, the criteria was, let's get the digital stuff first. And so that added another volume to that series because of that. And that's just from 2008 to 2016. In eight years, that many more um, databases were online rather than in book or microfilm. Or they were formerly book and microfilm or now online. You know, it's interesting to me what is going on at the Family History Library because they're the, they're the leaders in doing, because they have the microfilm of these original records from all the counties of the United States. And they're the place where the digitization is going on. And so they're taking a roll of microfilm. This is all done from microfilm. It's not very rarely are they going back to the county and looking at the original records, because that was all microfilm. Mostly in the 70s and the 80s for New York. Uh, and... Uh, it's a good example of New York because uh, Family History Library was there in the, in the 1970s. They had to go to 62 counties to get permission to do their state censuses and microfilm it. And it wasn't easy. So they went to the governor and got the governor to support the concept of, of microfilming individuals. And the only thing a county was going to get out of the deal was a free roll of microfilm. So they didn't they didn't get paid for it. They just got they just got the service of having someone microfilm their records for them, and then they got to keep a copy. Well, the governor wrote a letter and said, "You really should do this," and so they all did. And in New York, that's the way uh, that's the way all the states. That's the way the, the Family History Library operated in all the states. They go to the governor and try and get support from the state to do this at the state level, at the county level. And so what they they went in and they filmed all the state censuses. They had to get permission from each of the 62 counties to do it. And it took some time to get those permissions, you know. That had to go before a board of commissioners or somebody that had to vote yes or no on it. And, and so it took some time. All right, 20 years later, uh, 30 years later, they want to digitize the same set of microfilm. They had to go back to 62 counties to do the same thing. It took 10 years from the time they started getting permission from each of them. In order for Ancestry and Family Search to have all of the New York State censuses, it took 10 years just to get permission. So 
there's there's a lot of uh, bureaucracy involved in in getting things digitized. So the priority of the Family History Library on getting things digitized is often whether or not they can get permission to do it. And the, uh, the but once they get it, and the the other thing that's kind of interesting is they they made a decision. Uh, they've got this huge cadre of volunteers who are indexing original records that have been digitized. Uh, and they've got a fantastic system that they've developed to do that, and they've lowered the error rate down to less than 1 point, uh, you know, 1% of 1%. Uh, it's amazing how well they have developed that system of indexing. And it's because they've got a kind of redundant uh We've got two people doing the same thing, and then they got a third one checking it. And so the indexing system is just fantastic, but they've got too much to do. They've got, they've got uh, 20 years of digitizing before they can do the first index. So they are releasing the digitized images first. And so what you're seeing now and what is really unique about the new uh, three-volume set is all the digitized um, entries are mostly image only. They don't have an index. So you are pretty much the same way you were when you had it on microfilm. You went to the library, got a roll of microfilm, put it on the reader, and started rolling page after page. That's what you have to do with some of these databases family searches put up on these original county records uh, that haven't been indexed yet. But the, the trade-off is that an awful lot of these county records have their own index books. For example, probates. There's going to be an index of probates, mm -hmm. an index of wills, and so on. Uh, if you go to deed books, there's always a grantor index and a grantee index for the deeds for a county. And so those are all microfilm, and then they digitize it as well as the index book. So really, there really is an, a, an index, some of it, uh, but it's part of the database that's been uh, digitized. Well, just to get the number of databases that have been added to this huge digitized list uh, by the family search added a whole new volume to, the, to that series that we did in 2008 and 2016 and we added around fourteen to 1,500 databases that were not didn't even exist in 2008. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so on that note, uh, we are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the, the books and what, what form we can find these state census and records and substitutes in. Uh, so right now, this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We will be back the first week in May, and it's going to be a different day of the week. Uh, The show is going to be on Thursday, May 4th, and I'm still working on lining up the Westchester County Historical Society uh, with Patrick and the Westchester County Archives with Jackie. Um, So that show is still to be determined, uh, probably going to be at 10 o'clock. Again, it's a different day of the week. It will be Thursday, May 4th. And then uh, the third Wednesday of the month, I should say Westchester County, New York, um, the third Wednesday of the month is our general interest show. And this one is Our Juror Ancestors. Um, And this came about uh, when I served on the jury for Ulster County. Um, So this show will have Paul O'Neill, who is the Commissioner of Jurors for Ulster County, and Judy Russell, who is the legal genealogist. Uh, So they're going to be joining me, and we're going to be talking about our ancestors who served on juries. And that is May 17th at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning Eastern time. If you have any questions uh, for guests, any show ideas, uh, please contact me at janeewilcox.com. And also I want to mention uh, coming up, uh, the New England Regional Genealogical Conference uh, is at the end of the month in April. I'll be speaking there, uh, giving three talks. And then also I will be doing an all-day seminar at the Orange County Genealogical Society in Goshen here in New York, and that is on Saturday, May 6th. Uh, And you can register for both of those. Um, and so today we are continuing our uh, conversation about state censuses and substitutes. Uh, so, uh, Bill, we we have a different way that we can get this information. Uh, so we have a few different ways. Uh, we've been looking at the three volumes that are in the, the set uh, uh, called Census Substitutes and State Census Records. And as I mentioned, we've got the eastern states, the central states, the Western and states and national. So what are we going to find in these volumes? And then uh, after you've, you've talked about that, we'll, we'll talk about the, the other forms that you can get this information in. Well, the, the three-volume set uh, does cover all 50 states plus D.C. And uh, we, um, we have a kind of a format. We do a, a timeline for the state, or in some cases, we do a timeline for the region. So, uh, for example, New England, there's six states, and so we did a timeline for all six states. They're all kind of tied together in New England. But in other states, we do a timeline just for that state. And the timeline is related to jurisdiction changes. And because when you're doing census work, you need to know what was the name of the place they lived and what state were they in that year, you know, because that changed. And so uh, you need you need to know that. And when was it? Uh, when was a territory created? Uh, when was it? When did it become a state? And so on. That's that's all important information for doing census research. And so the timeline starts, and that's just that's a kind of a very brief. Uh, some so once in a while, some some historical events in there that are, are unique to that state. But uh, then we follow that with a list of of the most important uh, reference centers uh, in that state, the state archives, the state library, genealogical society at the state level, and so on. Uh, We want to make sure people know how to get a hold of them and what kind of resources they have. Uh, 
Uh, and then we start a bibliography that's arranged in chronological order by, you know, the first first census or substitute name list that uh, that we've got, and start listing those right straight through. Uh, we don't we don't differentiate between censuses and non censuses. We just we just list them in in order um, of time. So you you know that your person was in New York in 1855 to 1865. You you've got a, a section of the bibliography you can deal with immediately, and you got you you pretty much got a list a to do list of things to look up to see if your guy is listed in there in one of those databases. Okay, then after we've finished the three volumes, we've got all 50 states, we did a, a set of just national-level databases. This is, this is the databases that's the federal censuses that are for all, you know, all states and for a major substitute. And an awful lot of the national substitutes are military because that uh, military is formed from all of the states. But uh, we also have some some uh, national tax lists. For example, uh, one the, they used to call it Abraham Lincoln's tax. The Civil War tax of uh, 1861 to about 1868 uh, was the internal. The first time there was an internal revenue service in this country, and they did a special tax against people that had a certain amount of property and uh, became so. So they listed the names of all these people. It's the first national tax list ever ever. And it's, it's very useful. So that's in the national chapter. So we got so a bunch of other things, just substitutes that are in the national chapter. And uh, when when we decided, you know, we really need to do an individual book for each state, uh, we started breaking out, and we just went in alphabetical order. And when we got done, what we what we did was. Uh, so, you know, what would be nice now is to have an abbreviated list of all of these uh, web, all of the websites that where each of these databases are located. And we can do that without making an annotated bibliography. It's not just a list of the URLs. Uh, and that we could do in four pages. And we call them an Instaguide. And it, it typically is, is similar to the laminated four or three hole punched. Uh, uh, quick sheets that you see now on genealogical conferences all the time. You know, there's hundreds of them now. Uh, so we decided to join that crew and put out the what we call the Instaguide Family Roots Publishing is is the one that publishes those, just like the books. But uh, what is neat is that there you can get uh, not only the laminated four pager, you can get. Uh, PDF version of that. You can you can get for you know a lot less money for for like five dollars now. You can get a list of every one of the databases for New York, and you can put that on your computer. It's a PDF file. You can point your cursor at one of the one of the links, click uh, and go directly to that searchable database right there on your computer. So that's that's the trend of where we're headed. We start with the three volume sets, and that's got every state. Then we, we did a breakout uh, for each state. And what we added for each state was we added maps. We added a lot more detail about the state. We go down to the county level for the state uh, that we didn't do in the in the three volume set. 
and we add a national chapter to each state. So it's, it's a very complete book now for each state and very useful. And then from that state, we make that four-pager, that Instaguide list of the URLs. And uh, so we got a package now that starts with the three-volume sets, goes to the individual state, and then goes to the Instaguide. Okay, and how do we order all of these? Well, Family Roots Publishing is online, and it's familyrootspublishing.com. And uh, I think on your uh, website, uh, blog uh, site, there is a, uh, a, a reference to a link uh, that takes you directly uh, to the Census Substitute and State Records. And that that those words together will bring all of these uh, publications into a complete list. So you'll see the the original two volume set, and you'll see the three volume set. Then you'll see the individual states, and then you'll see the Insta Guide for each state as well. All in one okay. uh, one collected list online. So. Uh, and that's you know not only gives the prices, it gives a good description of each of them. So you get you get an idea of what you're getting. You know. Very good, very good. Um, so we are at the end of our hour. Is there anything else you would like to add uh, about the uh, state censuses and the substitutes and the, and the books? Uh, I can't think of anything. I you know I've, I've, some of the questions that you had that you thought you might be able to. One, what is your ancestry? I I started out in genealogy trying to find that out, and I still don't know exactly. I spent 45 years, and I still don't know exactly. And I have to say that's one of the reasons why people continue to do genealogy is they can never get the final answer. There's always another set of parents out there that I haven't identified. <laughs> so that's my so, problem. So I, and I'm really so, glad so, we got a chance to talk today, Jane. Well, I am too. So, so actually, so going back to to your ancestry. So, let's let's focus on on some of the more more recent generations. What, what where did they come from? Oh, uh, 1680, a guy named Francis Dollahide showed up in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, Maryland, and then eventually Baltimore. But uh, his name was spelled D O L L A H Y D E. And uh, there's no R in it. About three generations later, one of his grandchildren went to North Carolina, and they started spelling it with an R, D-O-L-L-A-R-H-I-D-E. And, you know, I've been to North Carolina, and I've heard my name spoken there by people that live in North Carolina today, and they still pronounce it Dalahide. Um, they don't pronounce the R, <laughs> So it got added in spelling only. And so a lot of our names kind of evolved. You know, I came to this country, and it, the name actually was in uh, near Dublin, Ireland, in as early as 1200. Uh, and the name was Delahide, D-E-L-A-H-Y-D-E. And so my, my search has been for the origin of that name. I still don't know. I just know that, they ended, that somehow they ended up about the time of the Norman invasion of Ireland, and they have a Norman name. So I'm suspicious they might be French, but we don't know for sure. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Bill, thank you so much for joining us again. It, it was just fascinating hearing about the history of the uh, the censuses, just taking in general. 
and uh, sharing uh, the information about the state censuses and substitutes as well. So thank you. Okay, and it was a pleasure to be here. All right, and uh, have a good day. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Unforgettable. Unforgettable. 